Happy New Year. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, my first thought when Drew was, told me I was going to be preaching this morning was, well, I guess I'm not going to be staying up late for New Year's this year. And then I remembered that since I have little kids, staying up for New Year's isn't really all that uh, advantageous anymore because no matter how late I stay up, they're up at 7 and they want breakfast. So I'll be up at 7. So, so what I've done now for a few years is instead I just go ahead and celebrate Australian New Year's because that's nice. It's about 16 hours early in my pajamas, doing the countdown with Cocoa Pebbles. So that's nice. Um, because cause no matter what, for some reason, there's something in us that really just wants to celebrate New Year's. And we see that all over the world because we see pictures of New Year's celebrated in Beijing and New Year's celebrated in Sydney and London and, of course, of course New York. And uh, New Year's is just this global party, and everybody wants a piece of the action. And so, so today we're going to jump right in there and talk about newness and see, see how does newness affect us as believers. And so uh, what my belief is and what I'm hoping to convince you of today is that God has put the inward desire for newness in us to point us to the newness offered in Christ. So our text this morning comes from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. So today we celebrate... New Year's, and we look to new things. And so here in Revelation, God is saying that he is going to one day make everything new. And so the first question is, well, why does he have to do that? Because we know in Genesis, when he first created everything, everything is good. And that's just the constant refrain of Genesis 1. He, he creates light, it's good. He creates animals, they're good. He creates people, they're good. And then what happens? Adam and Eve sin. The world experiences death. And Romans says that the, the whole creation just groans for this renewal that's going to be coming one day in Christ. But we don't even just need the Bible to tell us that there's something wrong. We see that everywhere. We see it in our movies, in our books that talk about utopias. And we get lost in movies like Avatar as we see them you know, flying through this lush paradise of Pandora. How many politicians get elected promising that they're going to bring a new day in Washington? They're going to, they're going to change things up. They're going to bring peace in the Middle East. And it's in our music. Think about John Lennon's song, Imagine. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. 
no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. It's nice. And and even our beauty queens get in the action, right? Because they're up there saying, you know, if I can just become this, win this pageant, I'm going to bring world peace and and childhood hunger. And like, wow, you can do that. Because we all know that there's something terribly wrong. And we all, it's in our, we all long for something new. And it's in our songs, it's in our thoughts. And one day Christ is going to come and he's going to bring about that newness. But it is the waiting that's so difficult. Now, here's the deal. We're looking at the book of Revelation, right? And that's, that can get tricky. And it's easy to get bogged down in the various forms of symbolism. You know, what's the mark of the beast? What's the deal with these crazy locusts that are going to be coming after us? But, uh, but that's not really what I think the book's about. It, John did not write to these people just to tell them, hey, in a few thousand years, there's going to be some crazy locusts coming. And this is how things are going to end. He was writing to real people facing real issues, and he was trying to encourage them on how to live out their faith. He was trying to encourage them on how to be conquerors. And so if we make this book just about trivia of what's going to happen at the end, we just really rob it of all its intended purpose. And so today, as we look at this passage, uh, we're going to look at a couple of ways that this promise of newness really affects our lives. We're going to look first at how, how this promise of newness can give us hope when we're going through difficult times. And then we're going to look at how how this reality of newness is going to affect us and change our priorities. And then finally we're going to see how how this hope of newness really is wrapped up in us becoming new ourselves. So it's January 1st. We just finished 2011. And and all of us have had different experiences in 2011. And and for some of us, 2011 was a bad year. And we're look forward, looking forward to, to 2012 because we just want to put that year behind us. You know, maybe you were, you're struggling at work or you need a job or need a new job. Maybe you've had health issues or relational issues, and you're just like, man, I'm just ready for that year to end. But no matter how bad 2011 was and no matter how bleak 2012 looks, we have, we have cause for hope and the newness that, that God brings because of this. Because if Christ died for us in the past, and if he promises to make paradise for us in the future, that he can be trusted in our present. One of the churches that John was writing to in Revelation and telling about this was Smyrna. Now, it's not New Smyrna Beach. That's it's a different place. But um, he's writing to them, and they're poor, and they're persecuted, and they're having a hard time. And this is what he says to them in chapter 2. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So now when we look at that, that's, that's a little odd because he's trying to encourage them, right? So what you would expect him to say is, I know you're having a hard time. I know you're poor. I know you're persecuted. But things are going to get better. That's not what he says. He says things are going to change. They're just going to get a lot worse. You know, he says, be faithful unto death. To death. But, but he doesn't just leave them there. He points them to this future hope. You be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. 
And you'll experience the newness that Christ offers. See, we also know this. We know that God is in ultimate control of everything, even our suffering. And even the suffering of the people in Smyrna. And nothing happens without his approval. Remember what we read in the call to worship? It says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You see, it's not our plans at work. It's his plan. Even though sometimes his plan includes hardship in our lives. But his plan can be trusted because his plan included Christ's death in, his, in the past. And his plan incru- includes paradise in the future. And so his plan can be trusted now even in our hardship. Sometime towards the end of 2007, I was watching TV and some people were talking. And somebody referencing in the past said, yeah, that was a bad year. I was like, a bad year? Really? A whole year that was bad? I mean, a bad day, maybe. You know, bad week, okay, I can see that. Bad month, maybe. But a whole, a whole year where everything went bad, that's a little dramatic, right? See, I was young and younger, I guess, and foolish. So that was at the end of 2007, and then I had 2008. And that was a bad year. It wasn't all bad. Not, not everything was terrible. Bethany was born in that year, and she's a lot of fun, and we're happy to have her. But for the most part, 2008 was just a year of just trial and hardship for us. Because what happened was this. We decided to move to North Carolina with the hopes that uh, I'd quickly get a job and we'd become stabilized. But it didn't quite work out that way. I'd go on the interviews, talk to the people. I'd come out and be like, man, I killed that. I nailed it. I got that one. A couple days later, I get a phone call from the recruiter. Hey, Tony, the interview went great. They loved you. They just didn't love, love you. They said, you have a great personality. But they're going to go ahead and take someone else to the prom. Okay. I spent 2008 as North Carolina's second favorite accountant. <laughs> and it was a bad year. And it was frustrating. And it was hard. And certainly good things have come out of it. Got through that, God brought us to Winter Haven. And Winter Haven has been great for our family. But, but it's difficult. I don't know why he allowed us to go through that. He could have used other things to bring us to Winter Haven, like a Corvette, which, which also would have been nice. But see, the problem in my thinking when I got frustrated and angry was, was so often I confused God with Santa Claus. And we can always do that, right? Because as kids, it's like this. Dearest Santa, I have been good all year, even despite Jimmy's constant bullying. All I really want is the G.I. Joe space station. Yours truly, Tony Ellsworth. And Christmas morning comes, you run out to the tree, and you got a lot of presents, good presents, but not the $1,000 giant space station. Overall, it was a good haul, though, and so you're satisfied until you go to school, right? And then you hear that somebody did get that giant space station. It just wasn't you. It was Jimmy, the bully, right? He got it. He's on the naughty list. It's like, Santa, what's the deal? Jimmy, really? He gets it? Next time, check your list a third time. Peace out, T. See, we get angry because our affection for Santa Claus is directly related to the gifts under the tree. And too often that is our same attitude towards God, but it's wrong. And when we judge God's affection for us by our current circumstances, we cheapen grace. Because we treat Christ as, as what Christ has done for us, as though his death is only worthy if we also have everything we want now. 
It is the ultimate, what have you done for me lately attitude, and it's wrong, and I have it all the time. See, because Christ has already given us everything, not only forgiveness, but an inheritance. He died for us, and then he ascended to heaven, and he promises to go and make a place for us, but not just, not just some little shack place, a mansion beyond our dreams. Romans 8.32 handles it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And here's what he's saying. God has already given you the greatest prize ever, and he's about to give you the next best thing. He's given you forgiveness, and he's going to give you heaven. And he's in control now. So so even though we don't understand the difficulties, he's lavishing his, his grace and love for us. Because he works mysteriously, but he knows what's going on. But, but oftentimes we think that God is somehow holding out on us. But he's not. He's not kicking around some back alley with his friends, you know, cutting it up about how he, he you know, held out on you 20 bucks when he has a mansion prepared for you. He wouldn't hold anything back from you. And therefore you can trust him even if you are in a difficult circumstance. And you can have peace knowing that this troubled time is producing something worthwhile because we know that he is going to make all things new. And if he died for you in the past and has perfection waiting for you in the future, then you can trust him in your present. But for some of you, 2011 was a great year. It was awesome. What recession, right? It was great. And the promise of this newness offered in Christ speaks to those in, in those good circumstances as well. To those who are going through good times, it's important to recognize that God making all things new comes with new priorities. You see, if God has given us this great gift of grace in the past, and if he's preparing streets of gold for us in the future, then he should be our prize today. You see, if he's making things new, then that means that all the things that we love and we cherish in this life are just terribly temporary. You know, everything we look to, our marriages, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. You know, money, there's not going to be, you know, we're not going to need money in heaven. All of that is just a foreshadow and it's passing away. So my daughter Abigail, who's here, she turned seven on Christmas Eve. And that means that I'm getting older, at least I'm feeling old. And a few weeks before she turned seven, she lost her two front teeth. So, so she lost her first front teeth one day, and then the next day she lost her second front tooth. So, so she gives me the tooth, and I take it, I put it in this little baggie, and I give it to her. She's taking it, she's looking at it, showing her sisters. And I say, uh, Abigail, don't forget to put it under your pillow so the transaction can happen, right? She says, no, Daddy, not today. Not today. And why not? I mean, she loves giving up her teeth to, the, you know, to get money. I mean, that's like her thing. She loves it. She just stays in her bed just shaking all night. I said, I said, what do you mean? She says, I'm not ready. She wasn't ready. She wasn't emotionally ready to give up her baby tooth. And I don't know if that's a girl thing or not. I don't, I don't know. But I don't totally understand it. Because your baby teeth, once your permanent teeth come in, your baby teeth are useless. You've got something better right there, right about to come out. And see, that's a cute story about a little girl who's overly attached to her baby teeth. But it's the same thing that happens to us every day. We can look at our relationships or at our success and we make it the focal point of our lives. And we spend all of our, our thoughts and attention on that. And we become like a little girl holding on to our baby teeth when something more permanent is coming soon. Now, don't get me wrong here, and I want to be careful with this, because what I'm not saying is that, you know, I'm not going to join, you know, Occupy Winter Haven and go 
get a tent and pitch it out in front of the, you know, downtown. I'm not saying that wealth is bad. I'm not saying that success is bad. It's not. And if God has given it to you, enjoy it. But don't enjoy it as an end in of itself. Enjoy it in Christ. See, John wasn't just speaking in Revelation to people who had troubles. Uh, When he wrote of the new creation, he also had in mind some people who things were going very well for. Here's how he describes the Christians in Laodicea. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, wealth and success are not wrong or evil, but they are dangerous, and we need to recognize that. Because time and time again, prosperity has proven to be the downfall of the people of God. Just consider Gideon, right? Here's this guy. He was a nobody. He was a little wimp. And God takes him out of nothing. And through a series of miraculous events, is able to, to use him to take down the Midianites. I mean, it was, it was all God, right? And what does Gideon do? The first thing he does when he gathers all the gold around him? Builds an idol. Thanks, God. Here's my idol. Here's my new God. And that happens time and time again in the Bible. And so we have to be aware and prepared for the unique dangers and pitfalls that success can bring to our lives. Because if we're not careful, what it does is it dulls our senses and we are no longer able to enjoy or seek after the things of God. Imagine this. Imagine that you take me out to a fine steakhouse. And you don't have to imagine it because I'm free tomorrow night. So if you want to just... Jot that down, you know, I'm available. Let's say you you take me out there and you order me the most expensive thing on the menu, right? And we're sitting there, we're waiting for it, and the waiter comes and he brings bread. And, oh, man, that bread smells good. So I I take it, take a bite. Like, man, this is really good bread. And I just stuff it in my mouth with bread, right? And you're like, like, hold on there, Tony. Don't get filled up on bread. I've got steak coming. And I'm like, get away. This is my bread. I love it. It's my precious. Whoa, calm down there, golem. I've got steak on the way. That's what, that's what Christ is saying to us. He's saying, hey, look, I'm making all things new. So don't get overly attached to baby teeth. Take the advice of the most interesting man in the world and stay thirsty, my friends. But not for Dos Equis. For the water of life that's offered freely. So what does it look like, practically speaking, to fill up on the bread in our lives? Well, it can, it can look different ways. For some of us, we have these wonderful children, right? And we start to prioritize them above God. And we just take them from one event to the next event to the next event. And we, we, our whole lives revolve around making this little kid happy. We don't want anything bad to happen. We don't want them ever to cry. And we just they're just everything to us. And we spend so much energy and time with this child or these children that we have no time or energy for God. And we're like Gideon. We take the great gifts of God and we turn them into an idol. And maybe you're one of those wonderful kids. You're a teenager, preteen, and you know, maybe for you it could be sports or school, and you just excel at it, and you just want to throw all your time, all your energy into it because you can't imagine failing at it. And so everything goes into sports or everything goes into school, and you have no time for Christ. For others, obviously, it can be money, right? 
start doing well, you start collecting more toys, and you want more toys, and all your time is spent collecting and enjoying these toys, and you have no thought and no time to enjoy Christ. And it could take any number of ways. And it's not the things in themselves that are wrong. It's not the kids. It's not the money. It's not the school or the sports. It's the love and exaltation of those things that just subtly steals our attention and robs us of the appetite for Christ. But here's the thing. If Christ has given you the invaluable gift of grace in the past, and if he has secured for you this glorious inheritance in the future, then he should be our priority today. We should rearrange things in our lives so that we prize what is permanent and that we save room for the stake. All right, so what have we seen? First, we've seen this. We've seen that through hard times, the reality that God is making things new and that he has saved us in the past can give us hope now. Second, we saw that the reality that Christ is making all things new and permanent should change our priorities so that we value him and just not our baby teeth. But how do we do that? Revelation 21 is clear that this, this hope in newness is not available to everybody. Not everybody is going to enjoy the new earth. For some, the gifts and things that they have now is the best that they'll ever have because their afterlife will be so terrible. Revelation tells us that only the ones, the only ones who can stake their hope in the newness that Christ offers are those who overcome. Look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But there's a problem with that. The problem is in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And do you see the problem in verse 8? Because when you look at verse 8, what you should see is yourself. Because maybe you're not a sorcerer quite yet. But who here has not been cowardly or faithless? Who here has not murdered somebody in their hearts? And who here does not suffer daily, struggle daily with idolatry? So what can we do? What, what is the hope that we can have when, when verse 8 and the struggles in verse 8 are the things that define us? What can we do? Well... It's New Year's, so if we're not careful, the answer will be, well, I'll just do better. I'll make a resolution. I won't lie anymore. I won't love anything but Christ anymore. But just like all those gym memberships that Drew spoke about just go unused after January, you know, eventually those resolutions will end. So no, the only way we can be saved is to be made new ourselves. Just like our, our assurance of pardon says, Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And see, here we see the folly of our New Year's traditions, especially for those apart for Christ, because we cannot be made new ourselves until we are made new by Christ. And we cannot overcome ourselves until we're first overcome by Christ. And we cannot conquer our sins until we are first conquered by Christ. And that only comes by him making us new. And see, this is really a great miracle. And we all should want that because because most people here don't really like who they are in the first place. And that's why there's so many self-help books out there. 
I mean, you would think you'd only really need one self-help book, right? You're having troubles, you read the book, boom, you're better, done, goof. Now go along. But no, we're always looking for ways to change ourselves, but we never seem able to quite do it. And that's because we can't, which is why Christ had to come. And here is the greatest reality of all, that Christ, under no obligation but his own self-determined love and affection for you, came to earth and lived perfectly and died in your place. So he could offer you this trade. You trade him your disobedience, and he gives you his obedience. You give him all the, the hurt and pain you've caused others, and he gives you all the healing that he's brought. You give him the punishment you deserve, and he gives you the reward that he deserves. And so if we make that trade, the Holy Spirit will come into us and make us new creations. He'll revive our dead souls and will make us a conqueror. So that on that final day when we stand before Christ, he'll look at us and say, well done. And he'll let us into the new creation. Now for some of us here, if you're a believer and you've put your trust in Christ, you may look at verse 8 and it may just be really discouraging because you're like, man, I still suffer with that. I still dabble in black magic sometimes or, you know, what have you. But, but the reality is, is that we should have hope because we're not made perfect right away. It's a process. It's called sanctification. And the Holy Spirit comes into us and he's making us and he's going to be, he's going to be giving us victories. So we don't have to have them all right away, but they're going to come. And they're going to be finally complete when we see him face to face. And so the call today is this, that you can go into this new year with hope. But not hope based on the subtle change of a calendar, that that's going to change your circumstances. And, and not in the hope that in yourself you have the, the, the ability to overcome any obstacle. But the hope that Christ is making all things new. And that one day things will be new permanently. And that you go in the joy that you yourself can be made new through Christ. Because if Christ died for you in the past, and if he promises you such great things in the future, then he can be our hope, our joy, our priority, and our prize today and in the year to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your good gifts to us. Thank you that you are wise and can be trusted this year and every year. Your mercy towards us is great, and we praise you for saving us and for going before us to prepare a wonderful inheritance in heaven. We ask that you would grant us a faith to trust you in difficulty and teach us to consider you our prize and success, and in all things, we pray that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Thank you, Tony. Appreciate your sense of humor and uh, your insight. Uh, please do pray. I, I want to say again, this fall we will have from this little church, uh, there will be six guys in this little church that are going to seminary in Orlando, preparing for ministry, uh, who love... Yeah, no, that's exciting. Is it right? Six? It may even be seven. I may have misspoken. I can't even... I lose count. So God is doing a neat thing in bringing these young guys to our church, and it is our responsibility to make them great pastors and, and preachers. And so when they're up here, when we put them up here, remember, this is lean forward, nod and smile, laugh at their jokes, even if they aren't funny, you know, and make them great. Uh, because we've got work to do, and that's part of how God is uh, providing for us to do that work. Okay? 
Now, in light of all that we've talked about and uh, and the, the reality of the new year in front of us and all of the resolutions that are in my little, you know, moleskin book that I want to make this year, uh, again, let me reiterate, it is it is what happens when I raise my hands over you as a congregation as a sign of God's blessing and favor and power and provision being at your disposal because of the work of Christ on your behalf. It is It is in realizing that and leaning into that, that you find the strength to overcome sin, whether it be dabbling in black magic or just being cowardly like me. It's leaning into the promise of God. It's leaning into the reality that despite what your sin is, his love is upon you because of Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, that is the promise of the benediction. And that is why, where you find the energy and the strength to go and to be an overcomer. And so receive then the promise of the benediction as I speak it to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face to you and be gracious to you. I'm sorry, I messed that up. Golly, I'm, that's the second time. Here we go. Let's do it again. You ready? I'm out of practice. I'm used to talking, not listening on Sunday. So let me, let me do this. Ready? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.